The scripture reading for this morning comes from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. This is God's word. For the past uh, month, we've been looking through a series of passages that we're calling Dining with the King because we've been saying that throughout the Bible, many narratives take place in the context of a meal. And these ancient meals in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, they were arranged to be very intimate and very relational and incredibly deep. So through this, because they take place in the context of a meal and because there are so many of these types of passages, we said, wow, we could really learn something about Jesus, a lot more about Jesus, something special about him every week through each of these meals. And that's what we're doing. In this passage, relatively obscure passage, but if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard it or read it at some point. Uh, we have Mary, who's the sister of Lazarus and Martha, and she does something so costly in this passage, so remarkable. Everybody on one hand, very polarizing. Everybody on one hand is indignant around her. But Jesus honors her. And it's because the only reason why she does it is she gets Jesus. She gets it. There are two points that we're going to go today, uh, look at today. Why does Mary do this? Why does Mary make this type of sacrifice? One, Mary surrenders, and two, it's because she sees. Very simple. Mary surrenders because she sees. Mary loses herself in order to find herself. Mary dies to herself and as a result, discovers her real potential. First, we're going to see Mary surrendering. Mary surrenders. Jesus is reclining at the house of Simon the leper. We see this in other passages that uh, recount uh, this same narrative. And there's a dinner held in Jesus' honor, and Lazarus is there. If you know anything about this book, one chapter prior to this, in John chapter 11, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And Mary enters. Mary enters in verse 3, and uh, she does three things. Uh, so disgraceful, so horrific. The crowd is just offended by this. They're aghast at this. But at the same time, it's so remarkable. And as a result, Jesus honors her. What does she do? First, Mary pours out a pint, about a pound of pure nard, an intense perfume. 
very, very difficult to acquire, very expensive as a result. She pours it on Jesus' feet. Now, um, most likely this was a, a family heirloom that was passed down. It's not something they just go out and acquire. It's something that is very, very difficult to acquire. So most likely it's something that was passed down through generations, kind of the way you would. I, it's very hard, very difficult to liken that to something, maybe an inheritance, maybe a very, very valuable engagement ring, something like that, passed down, something that's used to hedge against disaster in your life. The closest thing we've got you know, as an investment to secure against disaster or ruin would be like a 401k or 403b, something like that. And so Mary basically in one shot disposes of this thing, breaks this jar, the smell aerates throughout the house. I mean, you literally see her investment flying away. The crowd is horrified. The crowd is aghast. Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' own disciples, asks a very logical question in verse 4 and 5. This is worth a year's wages. Why not sell it? You could have sold this and given the money to the poor. In other words, he's saying, what a waste. What a waste. The act was so outrageous. Everyone is yelling at her. They're rebuking her harshly. They're indignant at her. Jesus honors her. The second thing she does, she takes this perfume and she pours it on Jesus' feet. Now think about this. In ancient times, uh, Middle Eastern climates, combined with Middle Eastern, ancient Middle Eastern roads. Very, very hot, incredibly hot, with ancient roads that didn't have waste management systems that were as automatic as ours today. The system wasn't, there wasn't a system really. People literally threw their trash out into the roads to dispose of their, of their uh, waste. All kinds of waste. So walking through these roads in open-toed sandals, you have smelly feet combined with the heat and the sweat and just the journey, the walk that people, you know, there were no cars back then, so everybody walked, right? So uh, when you arrive at a banquet, um, it's typical to bring perfume to these kind of meals because uh, you would bring some sort of ointment or some sort of perfume or spices, and you poured it on your head and you poured it on your feet. And it's because if your feet smell bad during a meal, your whole body smells bad, it ruins the meal, it ruins the banquet. And so as people would come in, um, you know, your feet were really the dirtiest part of your body. Your feet were the dirtiest, the smelliest part of your body. In fact, dealing with somebody's feet uh, at, at a banquet is so demeaning that there were certain laws that were designed to protect you against, protect certain slaves and indentured servants from actually cleaning the feet of a person because it was so demeaning. And so mainly what you do is you brought perfumes to kind of cover over the smell this act, she pours this perfume over Jesus' feet. It was so offensive. Again, people are aghast. They start to yell at her, and yet Jesus honors her. The third thing she does, and this is the most repugnant, the third thing she does is she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. To wipe Jesus' feet with her hair is to untie her hair and let it down. Considered it a, a disgrace in that society. Why? Because the only, you only did this at home. You only let down your hair at home. You never did this in front of strangers, particularly in front of men. The hair of a woman represented her glory. It represented her private beauty, her honor. It was almost to see the woman naked. It's the thing that made the woman feel beautiful and at the same time privately beautiful. What does Mary do? She takes this jar, she breaks it. The perfume is poured over Jesus' feet, and she gets down, 
lets down her hair, the crowd is aghast, and then she wipes Jesus' feet with her glory. All the trash, all the smell, all the dirt is ending up in her hair. All of her glory is gone, and Jesus is the, the smelliest part of Jesus' feet is cleaned. Everyone is aghast. Everyone's horrified. And Jesus honors her. Why does she do it? Because it goes against logic. It's remarkable, but it goes against logic. People are yelling at her because it goes against logic. But she's pouring out the perfume. She breaks this jar of perfume. Because what she's saying is, I am willing to give up my security. I'm willing to give up my investment. I'm willing to give up that which advances me or protects me or hedges me against disaster. By pouring it on Jesus' feet, what she's saying, I'm willing to lower myself. In a patriarchal, male-dominated society, in a class-oriented society, in a status-oriented society where women had no rights, it's a woman in this chapter that's honored. In this religious society, it's a woman, not a rabbi, not a priest, not one of his disciples. It's a woman that's willing to demonstrate surrender and sacrifice. It's a woman that's teaching this lesson. In a world where women, their pride is their beauty, their pride is their hair, their pride, you know, it's not much different than today, right? This woman says, there is nothing more important to me than surrendering than sacrificing to Christ. The world is yelling at her. The disciples are yelling at her. They say, you never give up your security. You're never supposed to give up your identity. You're never supposed to give up your glory. Jesus says, leave her alone. And he honors her. The perfume, the perfume is her saying, I'm willing to give up whatever security, whatever comfort I have for you. I mean, this is going to be my security for generations to come. I will pass this on to the next generation. We're going to say, why would you do that? I mean, you could find so many better uses for this. This is stupid. This is unwise. Jesus says, you, of all people in this room, you get me. And as a result, she is demonstrating radical generosity. In Mark chapter 10, very famous passage, Mark chapter 10, Jesus encounters a rich young ruler. And uh, the young ruler comes up to her, most likely uh, comes up to Jesus, and most likely he's a, not only is he wealthy, but he's probably some sort of legal counsel, well-respected in his, in his community, well-respected in his society. He's a ruler. He's a type of king. And he asks Jesus, how do I inherit eternal, eternal life? Very, very ironic question, because to inherit something implies that you do nothing to receive it. You just receive it. So he says, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I work up to this? And Jesus says, well, I'm going to tell you how. You're going to obey the law. And he kind of recounts certain uh, aspects of the law. The man says, but I've done all these things. I do all these things. So Jesus says, well, to make the long story short, he says, I want you to go sell all your possessions. In other words, I want you to sacrifice everything that you have. I want you to give it to the poor. And I want you to follow me. And the text in Mark chapter 10 says, the man went away sad because he had great wealth. Mary here says, there is no act of devotion that you cannot ask of me. 
There's a story, not a story, it's a true story, an account of Helen Roosevelt, famous missionary. Missionary sent out to Africa in the remote parts of Africa, um, people who've never heard the gospel. Helen Roosevelt wrote many accounts, journals uh, about her life. Here she is, she's writing uh, about her days, and through the days she has met with many ups and downs, emotionally, physically. In some accounts, it writes of her being beaten. In other accounts, she's being raped. In one particular account of Helen Roosevelt, after being raped repeatedly by members in this tribe, she says in that moment of weakness, she gets down. And she finally, you know, Helen Roosevelt, brilliant woman, says that she's a type of very calculating. Anytime she embarks on an endeavor, she asks herself first. She calculates, is the endeavor worth it? Is it worth going into this? And if, she, if all the accounts work out and if all the calculations seem plausible and feasible, she makes the conclusion, yes, this is worth it, and she moves forward. And in this account, in her diary, she says, after being raped repeatedly on a given day, she's on her knees, weak and beaten and bruised and raped. No glory to her life. She asks for the first time in her ministry, is this really worth it? And she answers and concludes, no, this is not worth it. Not this. And she writes that there was a still small voice in her ear at that moment. Helen Roosevelt, the question is not, is it worth it? The question is, am I worth it? And in her humility and in her brokenness, she prays, Lord, the question is not, are you worth it? Because you are worth it. The real question is, am I worthy? Am I worthy? This woman comes in, Mary, pours out her life savings onto Jesus' feet, the dirtiest part of his, his body. And she says, there's no act of devotion that you could ask of me that is beneath my pride, beneath my worth, beneath my dignity. There were laws that protected even slaves from this kind of act. Dirty jobs. But there's this passage in, earlier in the book, John chapter 1, where John the Baptist says, there's one who will come that in which, to whom I am not even worthy to unlatch his sandals, to untie his sandals. I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. Mary wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. Radical humility. Radical lowering. She's saying, I'm lowering, lower than your feet. I want you to consider me as lower than a slave. Laws may protect slaves, but laws will not protect me from this. I am lower than a slave. Mary's dropping any idea here, any notion that she deserved a better life. She says, there's nothing that is beneath my dignity. There's no one here that is beneath my dignity. Anything that you can ask of me, I will do. She wipes his feet with, his, her, with her hair. She's saying, I'm disgracing myself. I'm denying myself. I will lay down my honor for your honor, my glory for your glory, my beauty, so that your feet will be more beautiful. No matter the cost, no matter the security, no matter the status. That's radical confidence. That is bold. That in an age where women are told to, kind of be ste- told to step aside, to be quiet, to not act up in public, to not even let down your hair, this is true biblical femininity. Beautiful femininity here. Radical confidence, radical humility, radical generosity. Demonstrated by a woman in front of rabbis and priests and disciples of Christ. Do you see that? 
Beautiful picture of femininity. Beautiful picture of sacrifice. And when she says, I'm willing to give up my security, I'm willing to give up my social identity or status, I'm willing to give up my glory for you, what she's saying is, I am worshiping you. I'm worshiping you. I will do anything for you. I'm lifting up myself to you. You are worthy. You are my treasure. You are my portion in this life. One of my favorite psalms in Psalm 73, the psalmist starts talking about how, you know, he's looking around and looking at his suffering, and he looks around at people, and these people who do not believe in God, who do not believe in Christ, are actually, uh, they're, they're growing, and they're flourishing, and they're thriving. And he says, there are times when I ask, ask myself, is it really worth following the Lord? And then he says, in, his, in the same way that Helen Roosevelt, then he looks up at this holy sanctuary, and then he knows the future of these people. And he says at the end, you are my portion and my delight. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 73. Until you're able to surrender to Christ and say, you owe me nothing. You don't owe me a better life. You've given me new life. I owe you everything. Until you're able to say that, unless you're able to say that, you will never have radical generosity you will never have radical humility. You will never have radical confidence. Until you're able to say that, you are not following Christ. There are lots of people in this church, there are lots of people in the church, period, who are great at studying. You know, as in, in an Asian culture, we, you know, in an Asian culture, very bent on studying. If you read Malcolm Gladwell, there's several chapters in the book of Outliers where he talks about, he explains to you why Asians are so good at math. Right? Asians are very into studying. You know, we have uh, a lot of Asian theologians uh, in, in Philadelphia in particular because there's a seminary so close, many seminaries actually here in Philadelphia, so bent on studying. When I talk to them, I'm bored, to be honest with you. I get bored because they theologize with me. They think as a pastor that's what I like to do, which I hate to do, right? Uh, they, they don't get it. And uh, they think, oh, but if I just work hard and I'm theologically, you know, grounded and I'm studying hard, yes, you know, I'm following Christ. Well-intentioned. I mean, don't get me wrong. Very good intentions. Very good intentions. Yes, they pray. Yes, they're great at teaching. But is there an increased love for Christ? Is there an increased love for God's people here? I'm wondering if there's an increased love for Christ against just increasing your potential, increasing talents and gifts, against an increased surrender to Christ. If you can't say there's nothing beneath my security, my social standing, my social status, my glory or sense of worth, you know, deep down, it's the same thing as saying, God, it's the same thing. Nobody actually says that, but it's the same thing as saying, God, you owe me a better life. I mean, I'm a role model. You owe me a better life. Do I not obey? Do I not work hard? Do I not pray? Am I not consistent in the church? And, you know, you can't look at somebody on the outside and say that this gets revealed when things go wrong. This gets tested when people are talking about you. This gets tested when things aren't going exactly as planned in your life. That's when you see the smugness. That's when you see the skepticism. That's when you see the gossiping. That's when you see the fighting. That's when you see the complaining. 
That's when you see people step, willing to step over people to get ahead. That's when you see people ignoring other people because of their pride or because of their dignity, because of who we think we are, because of what we think we deserve. You're saying, I need to be special. I need to be held up. I need to feel special. What you're saying is my glory. There's nothing more important than my glory. That's what you're saying, really. Look, friends, it's natural to think this way. Well, you know, you know why I get to say this up here? Who do you think I am? I say that all the time. You know, when you're standing at McDonald's, you know, for those of you, I mean, we, you know, probably eat healthier, but when I'm standing in McDonald's, right, and uh, I'm, I'm standing in line, particularly in certain parts of the city, you're standing in line, and um, it's quiet judgment because around you, you know, you have people and they're, you know, you, you see people and their manners and how they are. You see the workers and how they are, and you sit there and you say, listen, you know, you kind of work for me, right? You know, get my food, right? This line is so long. You know why? It's because these people are so incompetent. You know, this is supposed to be fast food, right? These people, you know, this is, this is what they eat. You know, I'm just here because I gotta, I'm on the go here. I'm, I, I got important things to do with my life, right? What you're saying is, I have dignity. You know, I feel special. We do that all the time. We do that all the time in this year. It's natural to think that way. We treasure our money. We treasure our wealth. We treasure what we do. You know, because of the cost, the time, and the education, the politics that it took for you to get to where you are. We're not, you know, we're not willing to touch certain people, even in the church. We're not willing to touch certain people socially because it ruins our investment, the time, the education, the status. To, you know, when you're in high school, it starts way, way early, like middle school. It's not much different than it is today in our generation, in our world right now. When you were in middle school, there are certain people you know. After a few days of middle school, you know that there are certain people that are untouchable, meaning that if you touch them, their smell gets on you. You know, being around them, they're socially lower, and they're kind of cast out. So being, even being near them, the closer you get to them, their stink gets on you, and after a while, you become socially untouchable, right? We have that even in the church. It's like that. We have that in our city. It's like that. It's natural to think that way. But this is, and the reason why is because, um, and that's the same reason why we tend to only hang out with socially attractive people. It's very natural to want to hang out with socially attractive people, people who can get you ahead, people who can lift you up, because our glory is so important to us. Look at Mary. Unbelievable if you think of it that way. Mary is, is, he's not sitting here and politicking. That's not what she's doing. She's not sitting here and, and, and uh, crafting a way to get ahead. There's nobody she's trying to step over here. She's being stepped on. People are yelling at her, calling her a fool. Jesus' own disciples are calling her foolish. And she's lowering herself, lowering her glory, putting herself in a place of disgrace and sacrificing herself, surrendering everything that she has and that she is. And Jesus honors her. She's going against what is natural. It's not like she is unnatural. That's not what the Bible teaches here. The Bible is saying this is supernatural. Something has happened in Mary's life to cause her to desire to respond this way. If we get too close to people who are socially lower in standing, their stink gets on us. That's called imputation. The technical term for that is imputation. Their dirt gets on us. There's, their outcastness gets on us. We avoid that. We don't want that. We avoid it, no pun intended, like the plague, right? But here's Mary. 
she goes right to the stink. She says, I'm lower than that. Listen, she's not saying serve more, be religious. Religious people can't do that. If you're religious, you can't do that. Religious people are the ones who are outraged. The disciples, everyone else in the room, they're all religious. Religious people are willing to pour out. Religious people are willing to give. Religious people may even be willing to go to the feet, but they will never be able to let their hair down. They will never be able to let their glory go. Why? Because you only let your hair down in private amongst people who, who you know have to let you in, to let your full glory be shown, to let all the, the real side of you show, right? You only do that among people you know have to take you in. So religious people will never know where they stand. They never know uh, where they stand with other people. They're always insecure. That's why they gossip. That's why they step all over people. That's why they're comparing themselves. That's why they're smug and sometimes bitter. And that's where you end up in bitterness. That's where you end up. They're always working for other people's approval. They're always concerned about their reputation. They're always concerned about why people are talking about them. They're always concerned about their status. There's no confidence. There's no humility. Mary, she's so confident. She's so humble here. Irreligious people, right? They have no problems letting their hair down. They understand the concept that they're flawed or that, you know, that uh, letting their private sides show, but they can't pour out. They can't give because it's lowering yourself that they can't do. And so they're still working to find their security. They're still working to find their identity. They're working to find their glory, pursue their glory, pursue their worth. Do you get that? Do you see that? Mary, she's not doing this to be noticed. She's not doing this to be noticed. She's compelled to do this out of a relationship and intimacy that she has. She's enabling herself to be put at risk. She's at the same time empowered to do that. She pours out. She lowers herself. She lets her hair down. In 2 Samuel to close out this first point, 2 Samuel, uh, maybe the first all chapter, chapter 7, you have uh, David. And uh, David is singing because the ark is coming near, is being brought into Jerusalem for the first time in probably generations. He, you know, what represents the presence of God is coming near. And so he's singing and he's dancing and he's naked. He's dancing naked and his wife is ridiculing him calling him a fool. Why does he endure such ridicule? This is the king. Why does he endure such ridicule? Because God is near. And he is so joyful and filled with gratitude. He's saying, I'm willing to disgrace myself because I don't, I'm just literally coming outside of myself. That's what he's saying. Mary surrenders. Why does Mary surrender? Second point, because Mary sees. Last point. Beyond the cost, she sees. Beyond the year's wages, she sees. Beyond her security and investment, she sees. Take your annual salary. Remember, Judas Iscariot. This could be a year's wages, the money given to the poor. Take your salary. Put it all into one gift and then throw it out. That's Mary. Throw it out and say, in the name of the one person you love, throw it out. A lot of husbands here poured their, you know, several months' salary into a, a gift. And they said, I poured it out. I'm never going to, you know, what, it's not even an investment. Poured it out. Take a year's salary for your love. Pour it out. Throw it away. 
you instantly become poor. I don't know a single person here right now, you know, nobody here is, you know, uh, uh, who's uh, close to really truly being retired, right? You know, we're still kind of working there, on our way there, right? Take one year's salary, I don't know a single person here who wouldn't be instantly poor by that. Who, that wouldn't impact. Mary sees beyond this. Mary sees beyond this. In in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells two very, very quick parables in virtually like two sentences. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And then the next verse, the kingdom of heaven is like the pearl of great price. It's really two parables in one. In both cases, you have this person who discovers something and finds such great value in this thing. And the thing is, to everyone else, it's commonplace. Because, you know, the pearl is hidden in a clam. Very simple thing. Seafood, you go fishing, you find it. Uh, He's a pearl merchant. So he happens to find one that is of such value. Here's this other person in looking at fields and finds this one field, this treasure in a field. On the outside, so ordinary, so normal, so typical. And yet he finds something that is so valuable inside. In both cases, this, this person, the subject in the passage, finds such worth in what they've discovered that they're willing to give up everything that they have, everything that they are, all of their investment, for that one thing. So focused, so dedicated, their lives are wrapped up in acquiring this one thing. And they are celebrating. It is blowing them, blowing their hearts up because they know the value of what they found. There is nothing above it. There is nothing too costly. And Jesus here is saying, your relationship with him, if you've got it, if you've discovered it, is so valuable, so critical, so important, there is nothing that you are not willing to give up. That's why you're surrendering. That's why you're sacrificing. That's why she sacrifices like that. Jesus teaches here in this passage, verses 7 to 8, leave her alone. She did this for my burial. In other words, Mary sees. Mary knows I'm going to die soon. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. In Mark chapter 14, he says the same thing. He says, leave her alone. He honors her. She has done a beautiful thing for me, he says. The poor you will always have with you, you will not always have me. Mary saw Jesus' worth. Mary saw Jesus' beauty. What is she doing? Mary's learning. Mary's listening. She knows. She saw something that the disciples didn't see. The disciples have been around with Jesus. If you know anything about the way this book is divided, in John, this is a very pivotal chapter because up from John chapters 1 through 11, you see most of Jesus' life and ministry pretty much summarized in the first 11 chapters of the book of John. From chapter 12 on through chapter 21, you're pretty much seeing the final days of Jesus' life. So you go from years of Jesus' life in the first half of the book of John, wrapped up in, the, in just a week of Jesus' life in the last 10 chapters of the, of the book. That's what's happening here. So John, as an author, is now honing in on the most critical aspect of Jesus's, the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry here on earth. And you see this because in the first 11 chapters of the book of John, the word love is mentioned seven times, only seven times. I've counted all seven times the word love is mentioned. In the last 10 chapters, including this one, 
the word love is mentioned 50 times. 57 times the word love is mentioned in the book of John. Seven times it's mentioned in the first 11 chapters. 50 times beginning with this chapter, chapter 12. What do you think as Jesus' life is now pinnacling and culminating into his death? As this act of of recognizing and knowing what Jesus is going to do, preparing for his burial of love, culminates in his love. Mary sees. How did Mary see? Ever think about that? The disciples have been around with Mary, with Jesus for years. How did Mary see this? You know why? Anytime you see Mary in 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 the Bible, Mary's sitting and listening to Jesus. Sitting and listening. Luke chapter 10. Martha is busy in the kitchen working because Jesus and his disciples are there and she's almost upset that Mary had stepped away. What was Mary doing? Mary is sitting and listening at the feet of Jesus. Right? Which is, by the way, remarkable in those days because women never did that in the face of a rabbi. Right? John chapter 11, Lazarus has passed away. Martha comes up, right? She gets a teaching. She gets a teaching from Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, which I just talked about, Martha's busy in the kitchen. She gets upset. She comes out. She gets a teaching. Martha gets a teaching each time. Mary, you know what Mary does? John chapter 11, Lazarus passed away. Martha gets a teaching. Mary falls at Jesus' feet. Mary's listening. Mary sits at the feet. She's always at Jesus' feet. So it is not unusual here in this passage in John chapter 12 for Mary to come up, and what does she do? She sits at Jesus' feet. Very, very common. You see this all the time. But she sees something. She's been listening all this time. From this point on, in the book of John, the tide is changing Many people believe, and then there are people now who are starting to plot against Jesus. They even plot against Lazarus because of what has happened to Lazarus. He's been raised from the dead. So verses 9 to 11, people are are visiting the house to see Lazarus. I mean, they got to see for themselves what Jesus has done. And they're concerned about this. They're concerned about Jesus' compassion and his love and his power. And this passage again, Mary comes in, sits at the feet of Jesus because she's realizing I mean, my brother has just been raised from the dead on one hand, and he's being honored here. And on the other hand, people are plotting against Christ. And she gets it. Someone will pay for this. Someone's going to pay for this. Jesus is going to pay the price. She gets it. Jesus is weeping because of Lazarus, at the loss of Lazarus. Mary in front of Jesus, at his feet. The other accounts say she's weeping at his feet. She's weeping at his loss. She's preparing for his burial. Jesus says she's preparing for my burial. Jesus sees Lazarus in the grave. He sees the cost of sin and what sin does to a person in taking away his life. And he's overwhelmed and he weeps. Mary, looking at Jesus, is overwhelmed by the cost of sin. Seeing what sin does in the face of his king and it overwhelms her. Jesus, in front of Lazarus, is moved. Mary, at the feet of Jesus, is moved. An amazing act 
out of gratitude because she sees. And she's, that, what she sees motivated her to surrender, motivated her to give, motivated her to lower herself, motivated her to surrender and give up her glory. So important. If you think about it, there is no other motivation like this in our lives. Other motivations in our lives hammer you into change, either through fear or through pressure or something like that. Because of that, you surrender. Because of that, you sacrifice. Because of that, you obey. And as a result, you get something back out of that. But seeing Christ, seeing his love, seeing his compassion, seeing his grace, seeing his power for you, when you see that, that will melt your heart into surrender. It doesn't hammer you into surrender. Melt your heart into surrender. See, right now, if you're saying, I can't keep up with this, the pressures in my life, the pressures at church, the pressures of living up to people's standards, I can't bear the weight of people's expectations of me, my parents' expectations of me, I can't bear the weight of this sacrifice. You have to stop. You know what? What you're saying is, I feel the hammer. I'm feeling the weight of the hammer. You need to give in. You need to give in. The hardest thing to do in life, the hardest thing to give in life is in. Jesus on the cross took the hammer for you. There's no more hammer. You got to let that melt you into God's love. Mary saw that. Do you see that? Mary saw the gospel. Mary saw Jesus. She poured her life out because she knew that it would be Jesus who would pour his life out for her on the cross. Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews says, the exact radiance of God. The representation of what? His glory. Jesus, the glory of God, sweeter than perfume, is broken for us on the cross. And as he is broken, his blood will spill out and the smell of death will aerate in that area. He will be poured out, his blood will be poured out before the feet of those who despise him and hate him and murdered him. His blood will fill the area. People smell the stink of death that day. And when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is now the hammer of God's wrath is coming down on me. The weight of sin is on me. And God has rejected me. He has abandoned me. My security, my inheritance has been spent. I've lost everything. I've lost my standing before men. I've lost my standing before God. I have no glory. I have no social identity in the presence of the Father. I've lost the Father. That's what he's saying. I've lost all glory. I've emptied myself totally. Wiped away your sin. Mary wipes away Jesus' stink with her hair. Jesus is saying, I've wiped away your sin. I've wiped away your mess with my glory. I've done that. I have no glory. I bore the wrath of God so that you can bear the presence of God. You can bear the love of God. Jesus gave up all and became sin. And became, he became the sacrifice. When he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he gave in. He's saying, I I'm giving in. I'm surrendering for you, for us. We say we would die for our treasure. That we will protect our treasure with all our might. That's why it's so natural not to give. Jesus is saying, I am dying for you. You know what that means? You're his treasure. That means you're his treasure. You are his riches. You are his wealth. You are his treasure. In Philippians, Paul, 
In Romans chapter 9, in Philippians, in Philippians, he calls the Philippians, you are my crown and my treasure. You are the treasure. You are the wealth. You are worth him sacrificing all of his glory. That's your worth. You know, if you see Jesus Christ, the ultimate treasure, giving up his treasure, giving up all he is for you who are his treasure, that's the only way Jesus Christ will become your treasure and enable you and empower you to sacrifice all. That's your worth. That's your status. That's your glory. Psalm chapter 22, 14 is about Jesus. It's a messianic psalm about Christ on the cross. And he says, I've been poured out, it says. Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul says, I'm being poured out, he says. And yet, I am glad I rejoice. You can't be poured out. Number one, you can't be poured out, let alone be rejoicing when you're poured out, unless you see that you have been filled with Christ pouring himself out for you. Look to the cross. God doesn't owe us anything, but he's offered us everything. Offered us everything. Do you believe that? The hardest thing to give is in. Surrender to Christ. Give in to him. Give up for him. Give all to him. Surrender all. Surrender all today. Surrender your children. Think about what makes up the sum of your wealth today. Reflect on that. Maybe it's something as simple as your beauty. You see yourself as a beautiful person. And it's hard to give that up because it takes a lot of pride to give up. Maybe you feel like you've been raised well. You have tremendous, you feel higher than others. As a result. It's just natural to feel that way anyway. I mean, you don't have to be rich to feel that way. You know, the poor look at the rich and look down on them, right? You don't have to be rich to feel that way. You got to give that up. Give up your pedigree. You know, some of you have worked very, very hard to be where you are. Are you willing to give all that up? You know, and say, this is for the Lord. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Jesus I freely give. Can you say that? On this day, you know, Father's Day, you know, we know many fathers, all fathers, sacrifice their livelihood, their freedom. At some point, to become a father, you sacrifice your livelihood, your freedom, all the things that you could have done on your own to increase and expand and and advance your personal life. But a a true father is somebody who says, you know what, I'm going to give this up for my children who are my treasure. That's Father's Day. That's what you're really honoring. Jesus Christ, looking at his father, his father sacrificing his own son. You never sacrifice your children. The father sacrifices his son for his treasure. Let's honor the Lord. Look to Christ. Behold the beauty and the majesty and the kingliness and that will allow you to lower yourself and give up your glory and surrender. Will you do that? That's the only way you can. Will you do that? Let's pray.